You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Welcome to Strange Familiars. If you have had an experience with the paranormal and you'd like to share your story, you can email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. Allison, you're wearing the proper socks for this evening? I am wearing stolen Bigfoot socks. Yes, they were my Bigfoot socks. And now they are no longer my Bigfoot socks. They were clean socks. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> all it is. So tonight is... Probably one of the final Where the Footprints End interviews that Josh and I did together. Hosted by one Allison sitting right next to me. I'm sure we'll do a couple more here and there. But as far as interviews we had scheduled, like interviews on the calendar, I think this is the last one. So hopefully we'll end up doing Coast to Coast AM. We might end up doing another podcast here and there together. But this kind of really heralds the end of a, a long journey. Is this where the footprints end? It may be. (laughs) Years that Josh and I put into this together. We've been tied at the hip. That is a three-legged race I would watch. (laughs) So, as is the case with the last time that we talked about volume one of Where the Footprints End, we went off the reservation and we talk about related stuff and weird stuff and... At least some of the conversation, I think, was stuff that we don't get to talk about on other podcasts. I think we kind of went in a little bit different direction. So, Yeah, I, I mean, unfortunately, I didn't really approach it so much as like a, a promo interview based on your book. So much as like, hey, let's just talk about the current state of Big, Bigfoot. Yeah. yeah, no, I think that's fine. And I think it's kind of appropriate. And like Josh said, it's kind of a nice uh, capstone to the whole experience. Before we get to that, I want to thank our wonderful sponsors, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy. If you have a puppy and you need help with your puppy, 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy can help you. They have a relationship-based approach to training. They help you and your puppy become perfect for each other. It's not about making that puppy perfect. It's about the two of you kind of learning to work together. You learn the puppy, the puppy learns you, and you become perfect for each other as the program goes on. It Would, kind of mirrors adult interaction, hopefully. <laughs> let's hope. <laughs> Although I do desperately want to change you. <laughs> it can't be done. No, it can't. <laughs> I know that. 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy has 
online services like video lessons. They have a super secret Facebook group. Mm. may just be regular secret, <laughs> but I'm calling it super secret, where you can join other people with puppies who may be having issues that you're having or issues you might run into, and you can see how they solve their problems. And of course, they have one-on-one -on -one options as well. You can find 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy at sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. Let 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy help you understand how your dog thinks and apply proactive training methods so you and your puppy can be perfect for each other. Exactly. Again, that's sithappens.us. Look for the 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy link at the top of the page. And I want to thank Sit Happens and 90 Days to the Perfect Puppy for being our sponsors. So it's a long interview or a conversation, as the case may be, with Josh and I and you. I think you're framing that the wrong way. I'd like to say it's immersive. It's an immersive Bigfoot experience. Yes. I don't often get to chat about Bigfoot with anyone, which I, people may find hard to believe. I know. I, don't, I try not to pester you constantly. <laughs> about Bigfoot, yeah. Yeah. I try to uh, sort of keep it myself a little bit. So let's go ahead and get to this conversation. Again, it's, it's a pretty long one. Hopefully everybody will find it interesting. Welcome, Strange Familiars listeners. Got a very special episode tonight, Where the Footprints End, Volume 2. It's the book that Joshua Cutchin and I wrote together. The second volume of Where the Footprints End, High Strangeness and the Bigfoot Phenomenon, Volume 2, Evidence. And just like we did for the first volume, we're going to have Allison interview us, and I expect it to be the most difficult interview we do anywhere. So I'd like to welcome Josh and Allison. How are you guys doing? I am doing great. It's great to be here for the second and final <laughs> installment of Where the Footprints End, the, the end of a very long journey. This kind of feels like the capstone on the whole thing. So Would doing you say familiar. this is maybe metaphorically where the footsteps end? Yes, they end at Allison. <laughs> <laughs> they were now leading somewhere. That, that delicate walk back. <laughs> <laughs> the tiptoeing. So this is, uh, again, like I said, it's, it's the second book in the series. You can start with either one. That's the way we wrote them. You can kind of start with any chapter anywhere and bounce around. But we would like you to get both volumes. You pick up volume one, either from us directly or from Josh directly or from Amazon, or you can order it in at your local bookstore. You actually can get both volumes that way. Volume one and volume two, Where the Footprints End, by Joshua Cutchin and me, Timothy Renner. So, Allison, hit us. Where are we going with this crazy interview? <laughs> Well, I'll have you know that all of the questions have been sealed in a mayonnaise jar on the porch of Funkin' Wagnalls since earlier, <laughs> since noon today. No one knows the contents. Was there mayonnaise know... with them in the jar, or is this an empty mayonnaise? <laughs> no, 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 no. And maybe nobody else remembers the dated Karnak Johnny Carson reference. Yes, too, but... yes, yes. <laughs> okay, so I have a real softball question, and this is one that I thought both of you could answer, and then uh, maybe I'll take a stab at it as well. And it'll just get us started with the interview. And that is, and we'll start with Josh since he's our guest. Do you believe in Bigfoot? And if so, in what capacity? Softball. See, I don't know if that's a softball question. That might be the hardest question <laughs> that, I've, you know, that I've been asked. You know, it's, it's funny when people ask me what I, what I write about, you know, on an airplane or 
or you know out in public or something it's always like well i want to say you know bigfoot and ufos and and stuff like that but it's it's never you know what what you think i think is not what what i think so like yeah so if i say yes i believe in bigfoot that has so much baggage you know it's kind of funny we were doing a, a q a at the end of uh the bigfoot collectors club interview timothy and i were and uh the game was like, you know, believe it or BS. It was, you know, they went through all these paranormal things. And, you know, I kind of wanted to be just like, yeah, believe it all, but with, with caveats in terms of like, there's this assumption that, that what you see is what you get. And I think with Bigfoot, what we see is not what we get, but in terms of there being a phenomenon um, and people seeing exactly what they're describing, yeah, I believe in Bigfoot. That's, that's my roundabout weasel language way of <laughs> getting there. <laughs> Yes, with all the qualifiers, everything we answer is going to sound like we're weaseling out of stuff. But um, short answer, yes, I believe in Bigfoot. Longer answer, I don't believe it's a giant monkey in the woods of North America, or at least not simply a giant monkey. I think it can take the form of a giant monkey, but it's not something we can put in a cage. All right. Would you like me to answer the question as well? I mean, I know it's kind of tacky for the interviewer to be like, oh, no, I, I, I was thinking about this earlier. I'm like, I, I want to, you know, hold Allison's feet to the fire and see how she actually feels about Bigfoot. Because, you know, whenever you, you pop up on the show, you kind of flirt with these topics, but we never, I never hear you commit. So what, well, what, do you believe in Bigfoot? Because Bigfoot believes in you. <laughs> Bigfoot pays a portion of your bills, so be kind. <laughs> be very careful which Bigfoot you piss off. Um, I would say that I do not believe in... Well, now I feel like I'm weaseling out of it and trying to have it both ways, but... I mean, I mean, Tim and I just wrote two books of like 300 plus pages having it both ways. So I think you're, you're entitled to that. And I think, I think what we're all trying to dance around is like, I, I don't believe in your conception of Bigfoot. Exactly. I believe in my conception of, of Bigfoot, which is probably the same way um, that people answer um, these like sort of heady religious questions. Like when you say, do you believe in God? Like, yeah, that's that, that's a question that some people will just answer with a very pat, simple yes, and think that everyone else thinks of it in the same capacity. Right. But it might not necessarily be the same capacity, or they might it might, might not be the same God, or it might not be the same mm-hmm. version of God. Am I equating Bigfoot to God? No. <laughs> <laughs> no, I get what you're saying though, because when the when the currency is big hairy monster right and that's all the deeper it goes you know that's that's a hard pill to swallow and there's so many caveats and it it's just i you know i believe that people see something akin to what we know as sort of this cliche bigfoot yes do i believe that they've had experiences wherein they they saw bigfoot yes have i ever seen bigfoot no do i think that there's a bigfoot in the woods probably not I mean, if there is, I don't think um, that we've gotten to the point where we can explain it with any sort of reality. Well, what it, what it does is it sort of puts you into this position of contrarianism, right? Because I hear people who are skeptical and they have these really reductionist, often silly explanations to just sort of hand wave away what people see. And I mm-hmm. I leap to the defense of the people who have seen a giant monkey, you know? 
Mm-hmm. And then I hear people say that there's a giant monkey roaming through the woods that somehow is evading detection and, you know, selectively picking and choosing which garden to eat from and is, you know, basically <laughs> a forest ninja. And then I end up taking the side of the skeptics. So, you know, it, it's sort of, I think that, I don't know if that's a balanced way of looking at it or what, but I think that's sort of what naturally happens if you're being, you know, kind of intellectually honest about the fact that we are dealing with earnest people saying fantastic things. You have to try to find some some way to reconcile those two, those two disparate issues. Yeah, and I, I don't think I ever want to be the person that says your reality or isn't true or you didn't see this or just because my experience doesn't mirror someone else's, I don't want to um, discount it. Or like, I mean, and it's just so simple to just say you're crazy and I just don't want to go in that direction because... Well, I mean, yeah, and, and, and there's there's sort of an overlay, and I'm not trying to get heavy this early into the podcast, <laughs> yeah, but, was... but, 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 there, but there is an overlay that this is still the one area of trauma, the paranormal, where you can completely victim shame, and you can yeah, completely yeah. victim blame and get away with it. And if these people are, you know, if, if these things do exist, that's horrible. And if they don't exist and people are having mental illness issues or people were legitimately traumatized by something that for whatever reason they blew out of, out of proportion, mm-hmm. people can still have PTSD from misidentification or something, you know? So it really is frustrating that on the one hand, you'll hear that we shouldn't, you know, blame or shame victims and those same people will turn around and laugh at, you know, alien abductees and Bigfoot witnesses, et cetera. Absolutely. That's a fantastic point, Josh. Like, seriously, I didn't even think about the sort of the paranormal witness being the, the, the last traumatized person that, that we're sort of allowed to make fun of. And I, I think it comes from that real hard line. Um, you know, I have plenty of people who are friends of mine who identify as atheists. <laughs> um, but there's that sort of like that new scientism, new atheism of the 90s that came through and just made, you know, and really, I think, further stigmatize the paranormal. I think it's partially at least an outgrowth of that. But it really is sad that, I mean, because you've talked to people, Tim, that you do think have mental issues who, you know, saw something or dealing with something that that uh, seems paranormal but probably isn't. Mm-hmm. But those people still deserve our sympathy, you know? So of it, course. it's something I always find really frustrating. And, yeah. and there's the, also the combination of that you could be mentally ill and still have something like this happen to you. <laughs> it doesn't discount it, you know, like... Yeah. I mean, or if you want to go in that f- direction further, like we we are mistaking mental illness. I mean, it's it's a yeah. there are people who have uh, conquered schizophrenia by engaging with and having a dialogue with the voices in their head. So you know that sort of calls into question. Maybe we're not exactly understanding what's going on there. Well, I think we're probably just as lacking in our ability to understand mil- mental illness as we are Bigfoot. Probably, yeah. <laughs> Well, that brings up an interesting, interesting point that was made a while ago that I thought was really fascinating. Is that if you look at like, if you look at like three quarters of the conditions in the uh, the DSM, they're all anecdotal, right? <laughs> like, if if there's a recurring mental condition where somebody believes that they're a squirrel, like you can reveal, you know, you can take brain scans and say, oh, these people are all having the same activity in this part of their brain, et cetera. But like at the end of the day, you're building your entire diagnosis of this mental this mental syndrome or whatever around the fact that the person believes that they're a squirrel. And so does this person over here. So it's, it really is that sort of perception is meets reality barrier that we run into a lot. Because we sort of drove into the slightly heavier, I thought it might be a, a funny thing to, 
to throw out the the soft what I thought was a softball question, but really is like the <laughs> question of the entire Bigfoot community. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, you, well, when you say you believe in in Bigfoot, I think I was thinking about this earlier today. Bigfoot and a few other spaces. Let's say um, I deal with this because sometimes I, I deal with people within the photo community who are really involved in the Civil War, and so there are people who have in their sort of, I'll say regular life, two entirely disparate ways of seeing things who come together because of this one thing that they're very passionate about, be it civil war, the history or Bigfoot and the paranormal. And it's this, I think it has the potential to be a place for growth and understanding because that's something that we've been, maybe it's the COVID, I don't know, but our humanity has left the building for a while. And we just see everyone as the other mm-hmm. and not in the way that you guys usually talk about the other. We just see it as the good guys and the bad guys. Right. And I think this, I think it's one place where we have the potential to really find some common ground. But what I'm, what I'm doing is like, I, I know right now I'm saying, well, I don't believe in the Bigfoot that the crazy people believe in, you know, like. <laughs> right. Right. And so I'm already like choosing sort of almost a political side to it, which is not something I think that I think there was a time when maybe we could discuss this where it wouldn't be part of another identity. And if we can remove that, maybe there could be some potential understanding. Because I tried, I mean, as a skeptic, I think like Tim always talked about that. Who is it? The um, is it the OTO or who was it that would appoint someone as like sort of the jester who would the iot lumis athanateros yeah that they would appoint someone who would question everything Mm -hmm. even if it was the narrative of the group right i think that's an important concept that we've forgotten that sort of check yourself while you're busy checking everyone else check yourself you know allow that you might be wrong allow that your position might change my position on bigfoot has definitely changed yeah. And it's because I've seen people who have experienced it and I don't want to discount their experiences. It's it's a weird place to be in when you can't trust your senses and trust what you see or trust what you hear or trust what you think you see. So that's all you have to go on. I mean, all I know is that people experience things and they don't always experience the same things I do. And if that means I believe in Bigfoot, then I guess I believe in Bigfoot. That's the reason I try to be conscious of so when i'm talking about this and and i'm talking about these these kind of weirder concepts of you know this thing being here and not being here at the same time and uh, you know archetypes and and apparitions and this and that i always try to make the point that if someone is just driving down the road and they see a bigfoot cross the street or a hunter's in a tree stand they see one walking by i completely how understand understand how those people are going to think it's just a monster. It's just a hairy ape, whatever they think, you know. Uh, it's just a normal normal thing that you could capture in a cage. I get that, and I always try to be sympathetic to that. But if you dig into it in an honest way, I truly believe you come across so much weirdness, you know, 600-plus pages of weirdness, in the case of our books, that at some point you just shake your head and you go, okay, this is this is too weird. This is too weird to be just an ape in the woods. Well, I mean, I would draw a straight line from that description to, you know, people who see some sort of unidentified craft in the sky. Those are usually the people who are going to go straight for, you know, the extraterrestrial hypothesis. Mm -hmm. Whereas the experiencers and abductees that I talk to are much more 
comfortable saying, even the ones who you know, sort of veer towards the extraterrestrial hypothesis, they aren't going down that little green men scientist <laughs> route, like, you know, visiting scientists from another planet. They don't go down that route. Even if they go down the ET route, they're talking about consciousness. They're talking about near-death experiences. They're talking about the shamanic awakening. They're talking about things that are a little bit more complex. And I would sort of draw a line between, you know, the person who sees a UFO in the sky to the person who has, you know, a roadside crossing or who's a hunter who happens to see a Bigfoot. And then I would draw a line from the experiencers of, you know, the alien abduction experience, alien contact experience, whatever you want to call it. And people who are repeat witnesses of Bigfoot or habituators, those are the people who generally have the stranger things happening to them. And I think that that might say something about the way that the phenomena picks and chooses witnesses, maybe. I think that Bigfoot maybe is just a mirror, like most phenomenon, because it's in the, the way in which we experience it. Yeah, well, I mean, it's... for... <laughs> You know, just thinking about this in general, and so this is speculation. I I don't know, I don't know anything. You know, <laughs> like, I don't know anything. Uh, but uh, no one does. Like no no one, as as uh, Wes Germer says, like no no one has one in their garage that they're experimenting on that they can tell you what this thing really is. So I actually do, and it's going to be revealed next Wednesday. It's going to be live on YouTube, and so <laughs> pay now. <laughs> make, make sure to sign up now. In any case. Boy, I forget where I was going with that. Oh, I'm sorry, Tim. I, I can I can uh, podcast spackle for you while you try to recall your your missing memories here, because I I totally I totally agree with what Allison said. I mean, I, I sort of this came to me when I was talking to to Greg on Radio Mysterioso. Is how like there are fewer images that could be more laden with symbolism than the Wild Man. I think. I mean, oh because... yes, yes. And now I remember where I was going. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And when I talk about like the collective unconscious or, or about this, you know, appearing as a symbol to people. And again, it's pure speculation. I don't, you know, like I said, I don't know anything, but I feel like if it's something that's drawing from us, it's also drawing from the collective unconscious. So what you get is this, this collective idea of the wild man that comes up. And I think that's why, and we've talked about it before the, you know, the wild man changes over time. He's gotten more savage apparently, you know, over time. I mean, you look at Bigfoot, you look at the wild man, and it makes you question the line between, you know, man and animal. It makes you question how civilized we actually are. It makes you question, you know, what separates you from your animalistic base instincts. There is so much symbolism there. I mean, it's it's part of the reason that you you have that trope of you know the the wild man abducting women you know uh which happens time and time and time again um, i'm looking at a statue of king kong i have here in my office so um, wait you, you didn't get your wife with the club and take her by the hair that's not no it was the other way around actually. Oh, okay <laughs> um she grabbed me by the beard <laughs> um but uh i mean it, 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 there's just i mean even yeah, I, I get that there's like fetal symbolism in the alien gray and there's a lot of emotional baggage there. But just from like, if you asked a psychiatrist to come up with an image that asks us to question our own humanity, I, I, I think that the hair covered wild man would be like one of the most potent things you could come up with that people would immediately identify with right away. Yeah, yeah. And, and the futuristic uh, humanoid with the big brain, right? On the other side. Yeah, I thought I thought about that. Like, are we just seeing, you know, man 
are we seeing our, our what we have descended from and what we will ascend to? Like, are we just some, you know between looking well, at I the? Think, uh, I think the, perhaps we've gone back to basics because with the internet we've kind of collect, killed the collective unconscious, right? Because everything you do doesn't spring from sort of a well span of your own creativity. Now it's like fact checked against other people who might be doing the same thing, and like you don't have these amazing scientific discoveries that spring up at the same exact time in history without any knowledge of the other person working on it. Everything's so known now that we really have killed that collective unconscious. And maybe because we've killed it, we have to go back to to the very basics. And that is the past and the future, how we see those representative as our primitive and more advanced forms. And then we can start from there and build again. I don't, I guess now I'm every person in the comments of the other thing that said that I'm off on some trip somewhere. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> would you like to move on from from this to another question perhaps well, I, yeah i feel like we started off real heavy so uh, so um i wanted to um and maybe this will just sort of circle back to where we were but one of the things in naming the second book evidence is like how conscious were both of you of this idea of that um that, that's such a weighted word in today's world and that evidence must be entirely scientific and is there such a thing as like a scientific version of folklore interesting it's very very interesting so the way we separated the books we pulled a king solomon and just split it yeah it was just it was basically fortune because i think because of my love and interest in folklore i had finished the chapters that that lean more heavily on folklore first and we were talking about just getting one volume out and we looked at the chapters that were done and we kind of like in an instant realized these all fit together. And the other chapters that we haven't published, they kind of fit together too. And I said, let's just call it volume one folklore. And I think almost immediately Josh said, okay, volume two evidence. So there wasn't like a ton of like back and forth thought that went into naming volume two evidence. I think it was just something that sprung up, but it happened to be very prescient. Because we do talk about missing evidence and the, the trackways and, uh, you know, vocalizations and the, and, the ephemera. Yeah. 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 The, yeah. the sort of ephemera that's left behind in volume two, a lot more than volume one. So it wasn't really that like long of a, of a process coming up with that title. It just kind of fit that way. Well, and, and they're pretty dang close to being the exact same length in both books. Yeah. Um, in terms of you know word count um, index and whatnot, might <clears throat> and, and sources might change the number of pages, but in terms of actual content, it's pretty close. You know, I I, I do think though, Allison, I kind of worry about some people thinking that volume two evidence is where we prove interdimensional Bigfoot or something. You know, <laughs> that they're like, oh, this is where they get down to it. They're making a kit, and and we don't. I mean, you know, it's these so-called experts that we are. You know, mm-hmm. talking about telling you exactly what's going on with Bigfoot. We don't, we don't do that at all. And that's part of the reason that Tim and I jive well together. I think is like, you know, I, Tim might write something in three books that completely contradicts some of the things that he argues or thinks about in this book. And I, I sure as heck am, you know, I made the case that Bigfoot has something in common with, you know, witches or Solomonic demons (laughs) in volume one. And like, that's not where my head is at for the next book. It's just trying to present people with options and thought experiments, because if you just have a collection of stories on, you know, in a, in a book, then it's, it's, it's Bigfoot porn, right? 
I mean, it's just <laughs> it's the equivalent of pornography. It's just there for reactions, and you don't learn anything. You don't get any insight. You don't walk away better enlightened, better educated. You know, it's just it's Bigfoot porno. Not like that kind of Bigfoot porno. <laughs> <laughs> Where you'd make some actual cash for it. <laughs> yeah. But, and as regards science and folklore, it's interesting because, um, you know, I hit on the cryptozoologists a lot, not in the terms of asking them to go out on dates, but uh, mm-hmm. in, the, in the terms of, you know, pointing out the what I consider fallacies in their thought and so-called scientific method. And in this book, I make a very, very clear point, which as yet has not been picked up on as much as I would like. So I'm, I'm glad to stress it here that... The cryptozoologist uh, paradigm is unfit for the Bigfoot phenomenon because we've moved beyond thinking it's some sort of great ape. And in general, the accepted theory is that this is, if, if you believe it's, it's something that can be put in a cage, the belief is that it's a relic hominid. So this is some relation to human. This is a, this is a hominid. This is in our family in some way. And what we need instead dealing with this creature is cryptoanthropology. And I think folklore fits in very, very nicely with cryptoanthropology, not so much with cryptozoology. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. You know, this kind of brings up something, and I'm usually the last person on the planet to throw these sort of barbs, but I will say that in going through this book and seeing, or these books, and seeing indigenous people say, you know, this creature, this blanket term Bigfoot, Bigfoot disappears, Bigfoot, you know, speaks to us, Bigfoot this and that and the other, and then looking at the way that cryptozoologists say, well, that means that Bigfoot is really good at hiding behind trees, or Bigfoot is really good, you know, Bigfoot has multiple sets of vocal cords. There is sort of a weird colonial racism, tisk tisk, you poor brown people don't know what you're talking about kind of vibe still in cryptozoology. I think we were kind of talking about that the last time we had an interview because, like, yeah. that's that is partly what i heard when for one thing i don't understand where a lot of these um, ideas about and maybe you guys can speak to that because i just truly don't know like who was the first person who said that bigfoot does blank you know i like is there a did you find that as you were working on things like how like these sculptures and things in the woods like who where is the first mention of that and and is that just something someone said? I think there are certain pet theories that you kind of see people introduce here and there, but <clears throat> that specifically. Like canon. 
yeah. they do become canon. And yeah, it becomes this sort of known, you know, the, the, the trope of Bigfoot tiptoeing backwards to his own tracks becomes sort of a known. And I mean, in their defense, you know, when, when I talked about my chessboard for the first time on Where Did the Road Go, I talked about it entirely as a Bigfoot experience. And it was Soraya and Josh that kind of, you know, slapped me out of that idea and said, well, you didn't see a Bigfoot. How do you know it was Bigfoot? And like I said, in, in a way, that was sort of the genesis of this whole book. It was me sort of waking up and realizing I didn't see a Bigfoot. I don't know it was Bigfoot. And just going, oh, and having my, my sort of, my view shifted, you know, at that point. So, yeah, I mean, I do get, I guess, how, you know, if a structure appears in the middle of the woods in a place where there are Bigfoot sightings, it's, I guess, kind of logical to go, oh, Bigfoot must have built that. Now, when you but break that's that a scientific. The thing is, that's a scientific fallacy. It is. It is. When you start breaking it down, you realize, well, no, that's not, it's, it doesn't work. But, and that's the thing I, I've, I've been curious about the whole time, and maybe you guys can explain this to me, but cryptozoologists who are, let's say, Bigfoot cryptozoologists, as opposed to people who have, say, a scientific degree <laughs> in cryptozoology, <laughs> they lean heavily on some sort of scientific physicality of, of this creature, but there is no science there. It's the, There's not employing a scientific method. It's like factual leaps based on well if this happens and this happens then these two things are related i mean they're just it's just fundamentally not scientific and then to come after people who are not taking a scientific approach seems ironic at the least and hypocritical am i wrong there no i mean so so to be clear there are cryptozoologists who are Actual, you know, who are actually, yeah, yeah, taking a look at this in a very careful, methodical way, and just you know, similarly, there are cryptids that I think stand a good chance of being outed as actual flesh and blood creatures. I am a big champion of the fact that there's probably still a remnant population of thylacines. Um, I think Adam Davies, even before his uh, Devil Ewok portal experience, uh, which is great harrowing story we can get into sometime is is doing great work towards the possibility of revealing orang pendek as being uh you know a, a, a relic species and then you have all these other you know sort of minor cryptozoological discoveries that sort of get lumped together because they're not as sexy like oh look we discovered a new species of frog and you know papua new guinea or something so there is that um but there is amongst people who have this idea that something like Bigfoot exists, they kind of remind you, it's just a controversial and probably a crappy thing to say, but I'm going to say it. They kind of remind you of people who almost like the, this, like creationists using science to prove creationism. Um, yeah. That's that what I don't sense. understand because it, it's like your, your whole point is that science is flawed and because it's like a, an ever-changing concept that you're probably living in a time period where the science that you believe is wrong and will eventually be proved as such so that sort of in their mind negates the whole scientific process but then they use that because we are in a society that so values that scientific recognition they use those same concepts to sort of bolster their own theories which seems like if you're just going to go that way go the way of this is what I think and I don't really care to bolster it with any kind of scientific 
evidence. Exactly. It's it's that. I mean, it's. it's I hate to bring it up regularly, but <clears throat> um, I contributed an essay to Robbie Graham's UFOs Reframing the Debate, entitled "In for a Penny, In for a Pound," and it was the idea that once you, if you're going to be a ufologist who is looking at the abduction experience at all, you have to accept telepathy because even in sightings where people see a craft sometimes they'll get a tele- telepathic message mm-hmm. or that or the craft will re- react to what they're thinking and telepathy happens in i would say almost every single abduction so you're already accepting something that shatters the existing scientific paradigm like mm-hmm. telepathy some people will argue me on this don't at me because I have quotes from scientific philosophers who argue otherwise, who are a lot smarter than me or you. So <laughs> t- telepathy cannot exist in a physicalist or materialist paradigm, period, full stop. It means that we have to incorporate something else into that paradigm. So if you're already sullying your studies with something like telepathy, go all the hell in because <laughs> that's the direction that science is moving. It's moving towards a model-like idealism like maybe even animism eventually because there's great studies being done with psi research there's great studies being done with consciousness research and cryptozoologies are the cryptozoologists rather are the last people to this party <laughs> you know the uh, the near death experiencer researches are already there the ghost hunters are already there the ufologists have finally gotten there and cryptozoologists are still saying monkey monkey in the woods and it's it's you might as well just go all the way in and go into that non-materialist paradigm This is your final warning. Oh, you're the guy that calls on the phone about (laughs) our car's warranty. Well, in this particular instance, it has nothing to do with your car's warranty. It has to do with Strange Familiar's Patreon. The price is going up. If you get in now at $3 a month, or if you want to do the yearly rate, that's fine too. Or whatever level of support you go in at. I'm going to keep it. I believe I can do this. Where anybody who gets in now, I can just keep that level. I'll make it so people can't, new people can't sign up at that level. But I think I can keep it at that level. So as long as you keep paying at that level, you can get it for $3 a month. I think we're going to increase it to $4 a month sometime soon. I don't know if this is actually your final warning. (laughs) But I do want to give people that heads up. So if you want to get in now, now's the time to do it. Now's the time to be a patron. You get extra shows and it helps us. Helps us keep making Strange Familiars. So if you like what we do, it's a great thing to do. Patreon.com slash Strange Familiars. You can check out all the different levels of support there. Again, I'm pretty sure if you pop in now at whatever level you want to go in at, if I raise the prices, you just stay paying that amount, and then you'll be able to maintain that level, even if the price goes up for other people. Patreon.com slash Strange Familiars. If you don't like the idea of a monthly subscription or yearly, there's yearly options at Patreon as well. If you just want to make a one-time payment via PayPal, go to the show notes under any episode at strangefamiliars.com. Look for the paypal.me link. You can click that, leave a one-time donation. Everyone can help by sharing the show on social media, by liking and subscribing wherever you're listening, whether that's some kind of podcatcher or YouTube, whatever service you use to listen to the podcast. And by leaving us those nice five-star reviews, which does help get Strange Familiars in front of new potential listeners. And now let's get back to our conversation about Bigfoot and related matters. I interpreted what you asked as, you know, at least the answer, if not the question, is 
you know, why do they want to sit at the big kids table basically? (laughs) (laughs) And I really have to think that at this point, a lot of it is just so that they can say, I told you so to the scientific establishment. Like, I know that sounds absurd and they being the cryptozoologists. uh, Well, yeah. Well, and and not even the cryptozoologists, but like, especially like the people who are like, not to, not to offend a portion of our audience, but like the squatchers, the ones who are like really into like Bigfoot and Bigfoot's out there, you know, who just are like really Bigfoot obsessed. I think they just want to tell, you know, the scientific establishment, I told you so. And I think it really does uh, scratch that anti-authoritarian, anti- kind of anti-scientific establishment itch which i totally get as somebody's interested in the paranormal but um i think that might be a little bit where it comes from i mean is it okay to love science on bigfoot <laughs> sure yes <laughs> yeah yeah i also got got to love rational thought too <laughs> and intellectual honesty yeah the, the problem and i've you know i've said this on umpteen different podcasts and our our goal i know was to kind of go into different places with this than than we do in other podcasts but the problem being that what we have is a bunch of really, really good casts with dermal ridges and mid-tarsal breaks. Like they're really good and they're really convincing. And you have these experts like Dr. Jeff Meldrum who look at them and say, you'd have to be an expert like me to fake that cast. I can't believe anybody faked it. Alongside these, you have some ridiculous casts with, you know, too many toes or too few toes or three toes or casts that look like something out of a 50s monster movie. But let's throw them aside and concentrate on the on the really good casts we have. So we have these these really, really good casts on one hand, and that's it. That's really it. That's the best evidence we have. So if you take that, everything else we have pretty much, you have a few hair samples and blood, but they're all controversial. They're all none of them are accepted as authentic by entirely by, by the scientific community as a whole. So if you take that away, we have witness testimony. And the problem with witness testimony is that science hates it. Science hates witness testimony because people have, you know, failed memories and they they bring other stuff to the table. They bring, you know, their own interpretations uh, colored by whatever, you know, whatever life experiences. They bring that to the table and science hates it because you can't repeat that in a lab. And I love it because I'm a folklorist, you know. And Bigfoot isn't any different than Bigfoot or aliens or anything else that a huge swath of people have had some connection with, but where materialism and science fails, right? So what these things still exist in some capacity, you know, real and air quotes. Yeah, I mean, and, you know, if you think about psychology, you know, Freud wasn't a big Jung fan. You know, even though they started in very similar places, Freud was not a big Jung fan. And, uh, you know, where where Jung eventually took things. So, you know, when you get into these areas that can be, oh, interpreted, you know, differently and colored by opinion and and ideas and so forth, I think think you get into, like, choppy waters that, that people are, that science, you know, mainstream science, tends to get very uncomfortable with. The gravity's great. You know, you can drop an apple, it'll fall every time. They like experiments like that. Yeah, I mean, it, it comes down to something that, and once you start thinking about these phenomena and these terms, I think it really helps a lot. Something that Terrence McKenna once said, and I wish I could find the lecture, but he said, you know, science is great, but it doesn't understand the intricacies of a love affair or a military campaign. 
You know, it doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't have any mechanism or any tool to describe these very real things that happen in our lives. And, you know, it's, it's also this presupposition that there isn't anything that can choose to be in control of every situation. So phenomena that you can only study in the field are difficult enough, you know, getting outside the laboratory. But once you posit the idea, there might be something that is in complete control of how it is observed and what data is collected, then you're just sort of left with, well, you're left with stuff like Bigfoot and stuff like synchronicities and stuff like UFOs, I think. And in the sort of like strict adherence to like a dualism, it has to be one or the other. Like this idea that something can be both things is just, it just makes people's heads explode. Yes. Yes. Like, and, and that's the most difficult. I mean, it's still for me, it's very, very hard to wrestle with. Because I, it either is or isn't, right? Yeah. Sometimes I, it, it, it is and isn't. <laughs> it is such a difficult concept. And for me to try to get people to understand you know, especially the the Bigfoot fan that maybe was entirely convinced it was a gorilla of some sort that that they could put in a cage one day to get them to understand that that like no 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 I I believe all these witnesses that talk to me I believe them like to my core I believe them and I believe what they saw was there when they saw it but I also don't believe it's it's always there in the same way and i do, but to and then to go on to say i don't know the mechanism by which it does these things really makes people mad because they they want you to say it's not there sometimes because quantum physics and this is how it does it you know it it has a a box with these buttons on it and it presses these buttons and throws that switch and it goes into another dimension i don't know i don't know the mechanism by which it happens but it certainly seems to be there sometimes and not there other times yeah, if we can just sort of concede that that these things happen and people experience them and then work ourselves out of where we are historically, culturally, mm-hmm. it might be easier because I feel like we're, you know, we're in a, a society now where there's this constant battle between what people perceive as logical, scientific, rational and that is, um, I, I'm not saying anything against it. I, I believe in being rational and scientific and, and, and having proof for things. But at the same time, it's a way to discount anything that doesn't fall into those parameters. And this way of viewing things is very new. Like we're only maybe like 150 years into this concept of the scientific method. And everything that these people have experienced uh, has predated that. And sure. with every generation, we we experience the same phenomenon within our cultural context. So I feel like right now it's just the battle between how we're viewing things. It doesn't mean that these things don't exist. It's just that we have to get out of our heads on how to... It's like everyone's speaking a different language and we just have to suss out how the common words that we have to speak. Yeah, to I mean, I, and I think you touched on several important things there. It's like... Some of it is Western society, right? And our relationship mm-hmm. to these things. We're not prepared for a spiritual idea of these things, but whatever your spirituality is, an ephemeral apparitional idea of these things in any way. But if you talk to native cultures, they're like, yeah, of course. I mean, not all of them. It's, this isn't universal. You can't, you can't uh, monolithically speak of any native culture, much less all of them. But, but many, many you know, native cultures are perfectly accepting of like, yeah, it's here sometimes and and it's not other times. What's the big deal with that? 
so in the West, we have this this very materialistic view that, you know, maybe by necessity, and this fits into, you know, politics and, and the evolution of the West and everything else that this book isn't about. But, uh, you know, maybe we had to go that direction in one way to do some of the things we did. Maybe we didn't, you know, I don't know. But it speaks to an earlier point, and this kind of calls back a, a little bit of an earlier point that uh, Josh was talking about. Is there a place for ridicule in society? Maybe not in modern society, but in the evolution of society. Is, was there a place, do we have to at some point ridicule people? Because, you know, we do need people to understand that things like gravity exist, that, that gravity is real. And you can, if Johnny Nutjob comes out of the forest one day and starts preaching gravity doesn't exist, you know, it's your people are going to get hurt. You know, you can, you can, you can certainly prove to him that, that no, no gravity exists. So maybe ridicule was a way to address that at some point in our society. However, it's not appropriate to ridicule, you know, everything, every, every concept that comes out. It, it's, and it's a, you know, it's a fine line to walk. And I don't know if I'm making any sense at all. Well, <clears throat> I, th- I think you are. I, th- I think that, I mean, this is, this is, this is the part of postmodernism that I think really gets it, you know, <laughs> and I'm surprised that, that the postmodern community hasn't really latched on to uh, the supernatural in a more profound way, because we really are talking about there being multiple versions of truth. And we really are talking about things that you believe literally manifesting as, as true or not true. And I think that there are some examples where that, is a better or worse argument. But at the same time, I think that if we factor in things like the power of belief and the power of, uh, the power of groupthink and, and the power of all these sort of different, almost egregoric phenomena that happen around the way that societies choose to believe things, I think that's a, that's, that's a very useful way to, to, to sort of pin a lot of this stuff down. You know, the duality thing, I think that you said it best in this volume, Tim. That's an example that I'm going to keep on using again and again is the idea of the Mobius strip, how it sort of moves between two different worlds. But I I think that you can even make it into a simpler analogy. I mean, we live every day with stuff that is is walking that transitional borderline between non-physical and physical. I mean, I'm thinking... You know, before before I started saying this, I had some points that I wanted to say, some things that I wanted to say, and those those talking points were completely internalized until I actually chose to verbalize them, and now they're they're made flesh. And you see this, you see this in scripture, right? I mean, that's you know, God speaking things into being, uh, and I think that's where a lot of these phenomena are sort of pointing us, are in directions like that. Um, and I know it sounds sort of esoteric and frou frou for. A lot of people who are still, you know, just now deciding to maybe abandon the wood ape hypothesis or the flesh and blood hypothesis, but man, that's a lot more interesting to me than a giant monkey. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's the thing I found over time. It's it's more interesting and more rewarding, and you don't have to do the same kind of mental gymnastics that is required for there to be an eight foot tall giant ape man in the woods of Pennsylvania and I'll I'll just say Pennsylvania cuz that's where I live. You have to do some real mental acrobatics to make that work. I was out hiking with John yesterday and we were hiking through uh through site 7 and 
I was looking around and I said, what could I eat out here in the winter? Because John, you know, he does foraging and so forth. And he said, not much. <laughs> he says, you're not going to survive off of plants in the winter. He's like, you're, you're going to have to kill animals. And, you know, you, you start to, these realities start to sink in where you're like, wow, this is, you know, and all the points I made in the first volume of, of how many calories a creature that big would require if it, assuming it has a big brain and, and the way it acts, it would, it would have to have a big brain. And you look around at what's in the landscape and, and how it would have to be constantly eating and, and it's not cooking its food, so it's not getting the full calories out of it. It requires real mental acrobatics that, you know, while we didn't solve these problems at all, we certainly introduced um, different ways of viewing it where you, you don't have to, at least you don't have to do those same acrobatics. To me, that's much more fulfilling. And you have to sort of circumvent science ironically, to believe the, the the modern day Bigfoot cryptozoologist view of it. You have to circumvent science to believe in their science. Absolutely. Including the point of selective information, selective data. Uh, we, we've run across many cases of these people just taking selective data. And they'll take one part of the story, the part of the story that makes it sound like a big hairy ape, and they'll throw out the rest, the parts that are weird. My favorite example is Fluorescent Freddy who was a big, hairy creature that was seen in Indiana in the 1950s. And the kids there were calling it Fluorescent Freddy, and the newspapers picked it up. And I read about this in books written by, you know, famous quote-unquote cryptozoologists. Most of these guys, by the way, don't have a degree. They just call themselves cryptozoologists. And in this book, this person said, oh, he's called Fluorescent Freddy because of his glowing eyes. Well, if you read the reports, yeah, he had glowing eyes. He had glowing red or orange eyes, depending on the report. But the reason the kids called him Fluorescent Freddy is because he was bright green. He was a green, hairy monster that kids were reporting. Now, that's a crazy detail, but it's a very important detail, and it's a detail that was left out of many, many reports in these cryptozoologist books. They want to talk about a hairy monster, but when they said it was green, that was just convenient. We'll just leave that part out. That sounds too crooky. It sounds too much like little green men. Yeah, or something, again, from a 50s monster movie, which, ironically, this was seen in the 50s. But that's what, you know, that's what the people said. So if you're going to believe them when they say they saw a big hairy monster, and you're going to say not believe them when they said it was green, I, you know, I don't know what to do with that. It's, it's really intellectually dishonest. I, I do want to be clear, though, that, you know, <sighs> there's a lot of conflation between the scientific method and and science, you know, and, and, and scientism, these are all things that sort of get conflated and materialism, they all sort of get conflated into the same soup. And I want to be very clear that I am pro scientific method. You know, people will say that at the same time, science, you know, gave us modern medicine and science gave us uh, airplanes and whatnot. But I would say not really, <laughs> you know, I think imagination gave us those things and science yeah. made them be able to be formed into being. So, but I want to be clear that I'm very much pro scientific method. It's just that some people have allowed other paradigms to taint the scientific method to the extent that they throw out outliers that they can't explain. But here's the thing. And I've, I've talked about this before too, is, you know, these bigger conversations that we're embarking on, I know that, you know, Mike Cullen said at one point that if you're talking with someone about UFOs and you don't wind up talking about the meaning of life and God, you're probably having the conversation with the wrong person. And I really do think that there's something to be said for that. And I think that those sort of conversations are, are what cryptozoology could benefit from leaning into a little bit more. And I think that yeah, that's the other thing is that 
where the footprints in volumes one and two do not contain the answers to anything or the answers to <laughs> life or what Pigfoot is or anything, but they're a step in opening up the dialogue in a different direction. You know, if someone wants to come along and write some, a book that talks about the exact same topics in a broader and more comprehensive way, A, I'm glad I'm not you, but, but B, please do it. Because like, I think but Tim and I would both rather just like see these things being discussed, please. Like that's, that's part of the, part of the effort of this is to destigmatize some of these these otter outliers yeah yeah I, I forget where i said it i think in volume one where i said like people are going to come behind us they're going to take our ideas they're going to expand upon them and i cannot wait i mean yeah that's that's the biggest compliment that yeah. i think any of us could get yeah yeah i think my question was going to be something along the lines of are they really altered states or just differing perceptions are we back to the same just sort of language that each individual person internalizes to explain things that happen to them? Well, before, or do you really think that these are um, these examples of um, altered states of consciousness are truly that? Before Josh answers, I'll just say that with all of these chapters, we, we tended to paint with a pretty broad stroke. So we nested things under different chapters. So, you know, a lot of things we fit in different places that, you know, they're maybe not exactly going there, but they didn't have anywhere else to go. Like uh, in the stick signs chapter, I talk about Bigfoot traveling on on trains because it relates to hobos and hobos had a whole sign system that they used. It's, you know, it's a, a tenuous connection, but where else do you put Bigfoot traveling on trains? Yeah, unless you have a bunch of, you know, shorter chapters. Right, um, right. So we tended to nest yeah. these different things, some of them appropriately and some of them tenuously. But uh, I'll let Josh answer the question because it's his chapter. Yeah, I mean, you know, my go-to example is there's not a chapter on Bulletproof Bigfoot, even though that's a super common thing that you find in a lot of encounters. But there is a Bulletproof Bigfoot section in the ghost chapter of, of Volume 1 because ghosts are ephemeral. This seemed like a you know, relatively sensible place to stick it. I kind of wanted to write the Altered States chapter just because no one has really talked about that that much in cryptozoology. There is a recurring theme that you'll find throughout a lot of indigenous testimony uh, of these creatures being able to hypnotize people. A recurring theme of a buzz preceding encounters, uh, which you'll find in a lot of different experiences, uh, Marian apparitions, UFO abductions, and, you know, psychedelic trips, quite honestly that I think are all sort of pointing to a possible shared mechanism. Uh, it, but when you get down to it, if this is the case, you would expect people to see Bigfoot-like entities when they take psychedelics. And there's a lot of strong evidence for, you know, a type of alien archetypes that you see appearing in these altered states of consciousness. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of evidence for fairy-type entities appearing, you know, when people smoke DMT or take psilocybin mushrooms. But there's not a lot of wild men that appear in altered states. So that is a little bit of a stumbling block. Uh, they do appear here and there. And you do curiously, even though I didn't put it in there, get a lot of people who sort of end up with like a 2001 Descent of Man sort of movie playing in front of them when they take certain psychedelics or like they feel themselves devolving into like an ape man or something. Um, but uh, I think that altered states of consciousness do play into you know, one of those big issues that comes up that 
is one of those nested topics that Tim was talking about, the idea of mind speak or Bigfoot telepathy, because I think telepathy in some sense would be definitively an altered state of consciousness. What I found really interesting is, you know, that buzz in a lot of these other experiences, again, trips, BVM, apparitions, UFO abductions, seems like a symptom of the experience. And I wanted to see if it could be approached as the buzz being the instigator of the experience. And there is, uh, again, like, like in a lucid dream when there's something that recurring kind of snaps you into that reality of knowing that you are not in reality. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of. Or, or, you know, I mean, I I still have a, a real soft spot for the idea that a lot of these encounters are with genuine intelligences, genuine others, but they are using, endogenous dimethyltryptamine to facilitate communication or contact with us. Um, Dimethyltryptamine, for those who aren't aware, being a naturally produced psychedelic, uh, recently proven, if memory serves, to to come from the the, uh, pineal gland and long hypothesized to be an endogenous source of a lot of these experiences. So could these altered states be... Uh, you know, instigated by some sort of exterior sound component. Like some sort of like hypnagogic induction. <laughs> hypnagogic, you know, you think about theta waves and the way that you you can change your consciousness just by focusing on something. So, you know, there's a long-standing tradition of drones being used in meditative practice of, uh, you know, uh, in uh, certain uh, Aboriginal groups in Australia of using the didgeridoo, which I have right here. <laughs> I do that every time. <laughs> Um, so, so wait a minute, wait a minute. How much does playing tuba help you playing didgeridoo? Are they totally different things? Uh, well, this has kind of got a big mouthpiece. I need to put some more wax around the hole so it, it tightens it up a little bit. So you're using a lot of air, but uh, I did learn to circular breathe on tuba before I learned how to circular breathe for the didgeridoo. So there is there is a, a comparison to be made there, yeah. But yeah, uh, just, you know, uh, put your lips together and blow, kid. <laughs> um... So that idea of the drone occurs in a lot of transcendental practice, and that sort of corresponds roughly to the idea of a buzz. Um, There are some Bigfoot witnesses who describe things that sound just like a didgeridoo. And that idea of a drone, a fundamental pitch with uh, another pitch sounding over it, is found in overtone singing, which we found a passage in the... Uh, Slate and Barry Bigfoot book that describes some sort of odd singing like a chant that uh, Barry compared to hearing in a monastery in Japan. Overtone singing was practiced among some Ainu in Japan up until the last practitioner died in 1976. So we have the geographical component and the time frame both sort of line up with the possibility that Barry was making this, Barry was passed away, you know, or otherwise we would have just asked him. (laughs) Barry is drawing this comparison to the Bigfoot singing to overtone singing. And we have our lovely Timothy Renner who captured something that sounds suspiciously like overtone singing which sounds like this didgeridoo sound that people are mentioning uh, in one of his on-site interviews at Pond Bank. So I think that there's something there, but I don't really, it's not enough to say that something else is making this sound because people have heard these sounds coming from these creatures. So I, I don't know if 
there's a connection there, but I don't necessarily think that it's in that idea of, you know, this other ephemeral intelligence is making the sound and then people see Bigfoot. It seems like mm-hmm. people see this Bigfoot, whatever it is, and then they hear the sound and that's when some odd things happen. Long way to come around to sort of answer your question, Allison. Yeah, yeah, so, yeah sort of answer your question. What was your original question? <laughs> <laughs> that's why I thought, well, maybe maybe it's better to just go with a lot of questions based on uh, which way the, the wind was blowing with our conversations generally. Did I answer your question though? Can you, yes, can you yes, repeat yes. your question? Okay. Yeah, yeah. I think because it's like, I, I mean, I, I just keep returning to this idea that it's an, a couple basic challenges. It's like we're, we're in 2021. There's a, a huge battle between probably faith and science, or even just, and, and I think those words are probably inaccurate. Someone said reality is having a midlife crisis. Oh, I hear that. <laughs> and, and the thing is, like in Jung's case, uh, instead of sitting down every night and drawing my demons and making them into mandalas and engaging with it, do some people at a time of crisis or do they see Bigfoot? Is there is this just a limited engagement, short run, short release? <laughs> <laughs> limited edition. Limited edition. Sign in um, Phenomenon, uh, which if we were... Um, more engaged, could we um, maybe find what the real um, the real issue is or the real? Well, I mean, I, th- I think that there's there's a Bigfoot inside all of our heads. I mean, it's <laughs> it's kind it's kind of like I was I was talking to, uh, you know, shout out to Barbara and the Six Degrees of John Keel crew on an upcoming interview. I was talking with them about the fact that, like, you know, we we all have memories of flying. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, like something about that feels like we've done it before, right? Like you, mm-hmm. when you have dreams and you fly, you're like, oh yeah, I've, I've done this before. Yeah. And I kind of think that that wild man going feral wolf howling at the moon thing is kind of one of those things where it's like, yeah, I kind of, something about that really speaks to me. Like it feels like I did that in a past life or something. Yeah. And there's a great freedom to, to that thought of just being sort of, um, primitive and, and ruled by these very scientific scientific notions of like um, hormones and needs and like you're you're ruled you there's a freedom in that you don't have to think anymore. <laughs> you you <laughs> yes, move to yes. instinct. You move to instinct yeah, move from to, yeah, yeah yeah yeah. There's there's instinct and and, and well and, and a world without a, like a certain amount of anxiety because they talk about areas where people are you know, just desperately trying to maintain living, there is not a, the, the rash of anxiety and depression that there is in places where we have time to think about that. <laughs> what? And, and, and unleashing the id, too. I mean, mm-hmm. which is, isn't that what the werewolf shtick is? You know, yeah. <laughs> the, the ego falls away and the id comes out to play. The but, only thing I'd, I would caution in this line of thinking is the fact that this, this wild man has always been with us. Like that, I will stand by. So it's not a it's not a modern phenomenon, you know. It's not something that, I mean, we named it Bigfoot in the 1950s, but you know, by one name or another, it's always been there, you know, in, in the woods beside us, as I say. Right. Yeah. Our, no. I... Our wild shadow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. That's 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 the perfect descriptor that puts a real pin in it. Sure. I mean, he. I mean, he even really looks like what happens when you walk and look back and see physically your shadow. And while you know you're only a certain height, it. You know, your senses are telling you that this shadow person is elongated or shorter or wider than you are. You're using your senses, but 
none of it is true. It isn't another person walking beside you. It isn't a bigger person or a smaller person. Well, it also comes back to this idea that I played with when I talked about how, you know, the connection between jumping Frenchman syndrome, which has been talked about <laughs> on the podcast and Bigfoot, you know, I mean, with that, these lumberjacks were, you know, obviously the lumberjacks are, I, I couldn't find anything to say this, but they've got to be some sort of derivation of the wild man archetype or oh, sure. some sort of role yeah. like that. Having, you know, this amazing strength and being compelled to mimic people, you know, voice mimicry and movement mimicry. This is all Bigfoot stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and it also ties into that idea, you know, you said the shadow, the idea that it's completely unscientific, but you see it happening time and time again, that human beings can become feralized. Like, you know, you, you mm-hmm. go off, you go off for 10 years in the, in the forest and you come out like, you know, covered in fur <laughs> with canines, you know? Well, it's, I mean, also where you go 10 months, without seeing other people's faces and smiles and the things that we recognize as signs of humanity, like um, the way people gesture and all of that is gone for 10 months. And then you wonder why everyone hates each other. (laughs) (laughs) That's that's true. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine that. What what, what sort of a world would that be? (laughs) I don't I I kind of wish that um, the brother Richard was on here to be, um, because I'm um, a, a pretty bad advocate for the the faith side of things, but I kept thinking about how, like, you know, Bigfoot is so much like God in that, like, I absolutely believe genuinely 100% that someone like Brother Richard believes every part of his faith. But at the same time, it is also true for me that I have none of that, and I have never have we experience the same things in life, but we see them through a different lens. Yeah. I mean, I would say that you've evolved a sort of, um, I don't think acceptance is the right word, but uh, definitely a compassion towards that line of thinking over time. You've sort of Goldilocks your way there a little bit. (laughs) Because I mean, because I mean, speaking with, speaking with you is very different than speaking with someone who doesn't leave room for any of this stuff. Right. Right. Well, yeah, and I think that's part of the problem because it's it's just as dual. It really is just as dualistic as someone who's, you know, anytime you take that extreme position and just just don't allow for any kind of letting anything enter into your stream that doesn't fit with what you already think. That's the. I mean, I think that's the problem with most most of the way in in which our our, our culture has seemed to stop evolving is because. We can't let anything else in because it doesn't fit our identity, doesn't fit our narrative. I mean, I think that's even why we're sort of backing off from certain ways of explaining Bigfoot, because we don't want to be lumped in with a certain identity of people who might think of it in a different conception and what that entire identity might mean. Cognitive dissidence is a difficult pill to swallow. It's very, very, very large, and you have to swallow it continually if you want to try to be in any way honest, I think. Yeah, just like that, being open to the idea that you might be wrong or that your idea might change as you learn more. Yeah, and in a way, like, I think that's might be one of the frustrations. I mean, A, there, there, there's a, a type that's going to be frustrated with art, these books in general just because they exist. And as one person told me, you know, Bigfoot's a hairy, uh, you know, undiscovered hominid and anybody who thinks any different is crazy. Well, if you make statements like that, then you know, where are you going to go? Like anybody who experienced any weird stuff is either lying or crazy. That's what this person told me. 
well, where can you go with that? Like, there's nowhere to go with that. That's and it's again, it's not intellectually honest because it's just it's not fair to the witnesses who have seen weird stuff. So you got those types, and then you have people who genuinely struggle with cognitive dissonance when they really, really struggle, and and they will like, okay, this weird stuff happens, but it's all explainable. You know, it's 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 naturally explainable. The the people were mistaken, or or the Bigfoot you know, didn't disappear. He jumped behind a tree and the person didn't notice it or whatever. You know, you you have those types. And then you have people who by nature, and I think that that's the nature of this book. We're kind of saying like, we don't know. We're taking all these things. We're showing, we just point you all the commonalities between the Bigfoot experience and these other experiences, the Bigfoot story and these other folklore stories. And we can show you all the very, very similar things and, and, and how similar they are you know, 600 pages again between the two volumes. But at no point do we say like, this is what it is or Bigfoot's interdimensional or, or any of that. And I think there's some frustration with that, that we do pick up on. And it's, it's not always from the, from the people, you know, that first type of person who says, you know, everyone's crazy or lying. If they say anything weird happened, it's sometimes it's from people who do mean well, but, but they're, you know, genuinely frustrated with, with us because uh, our point of going into this. I mean, going into this, our point is we don't know and no one else knows either, but here's some ideas. I think that's what people miss about these interviews that we do, Tim, is that like, I'm frustrated by this. You know, and I love it when people come away and they say, these guys who think the Bigfoot is interdimensional. I'm like, I, I have a huge problem with that. You know, right. The idea that interdimensional is like this catch-all explanation for things, which is the way that it's often employed. You know, I'm I'm frustrated by this data set too, but it doesn't. My frustrations don't make it go away. Right, <laughs> and, and, yeah. and and the people who want to adhere to this, you know, materialist, undiscovered hominid line of thinking are are doing just that. They're just sort of wishing this stuff away, and that's intellectually dishonest. Right, and and you have this sort of in between, which is, and again. I love Ron Moorhead, and he he has done more in his life than I will ever do. Kudos to Ron Moorhead. He's been nothing but kind to me, so this is not trying to impugn his character in any way. But the idea that you're saying, oh, it's quantum physics, and that explains it all, is just, you know, it's it's a different set of straws you're reaching for, in my mind. It really is, to me, a, a sort of scientific way of saying how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. You know, <laughs> it really is. It's like, you know. And I love the quote that you attributed to me that was not me at all. At one point you said, yeah, remember when you said, like, if you think you understand quantum physics, you don't understand quantum physics. And that was, oh, yeah, it was Richard Feynman. It wasn't, yeah. <laughs> it wasn't was, you at all. It was an actual quantum physicist. Yeah, I was like, I really wish I said that. But, uh, yeah. but I mean, I think it applies, but, but I, I think that that idea applies to the, it's like the halfway point. So these flesh and blood, you know, ape in the woods, people can be like, all right, well, quantum physics is a real science. So it's still scientific, you know, and, and therefore weird stuff equals quantum physics, therefore perfectly normal. It's just an ape in the woods. Yeah. I, I think that, and this completely flies in the face of what my next book is about kind of trying to force everything into an understandable concept. But I think that at the end of the day, we really have to get comfortable with the idea that a lot of these concepts might be literally beyond our capacity to conceive of them right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember Tim saying that he went, went through almost, I don't want to say a depression, but a real 
disappointment and then sort of an acceptance, which I think helped blossom into this theory was when he realized that he wasn't going to solve it. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Like, because he, like, there's this idea with like, you know, Sasquatch hunting that you will be the one to magically figure out something that no one has yet to figure out. And like the thrill of that kind of a hunt is why would you want to give that up and say, I will, there's no possibility of me ever figuring this out. Right. Yeah. But you know, 50 plus years, guys, we don't have one in a zoo yet. We got to start looking at it in a different way. (laughs) Well, same thing with the UFO question. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's what's it's the it's the Patrick Harper quote, you know, the fairies are always going, 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 but never gone, and the, uh, you know, the aliens are always coming, 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 but never here, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> disclosures this year, this disclosures this year, guy, you guys, yeah, you know, <laughs> right around the corner. Patrick Harper, my goodness, I and mean, that's who you dedicated the book to, right? Yeah, yeah. Just what I mean, what a mind on him. Sorry to stop things again. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean it's he. Uh, <sighs> It's interesting because I'm actually I actually have been seeing uh, demonic reality crop up more and more on people's must read lists. Yeah, actually, yeah, uh, which is, d- really warms my heart. I don't know if we've played any part in that by talking it up so much, but uh, if so, good. I don't think we've done any harm to it because, uh, boy, I, you know, reading back through the like my disappearing evidence chapter, I'm just. I just see place after place like, oh, I could have dropped a Harper quote there. I could have dropped a Harper quote there. He's just so eloquent in the way he phrases this stuff. It's, wow. I just, uh, I can't say enough kind words about him. It's it's one of the, you know, Demonic Reality is one of those books that whenever I go back to read it in preparation for another book, I'm like, why am I even writing another book? You know, <laughs> It's like, it's kind of, it's pretty darn close, I think, to just being like the book, you know? Yeah. Yeah. He's, he's, uh, that's such a good writer too. It's not just the ideas; it's the writing. He can really write. Yeah. And back to where the footprints end. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, how about yeah, this? Th- th- there are some people who are going to adore this show, and some people who are going to have turned it off already. <laughs> just as last time, I think we not not to pat myself on the back, but I think we accidentally invented intersectional Bigfoot and pissed some people off. <laughs> oh, people got so mad. Last time, oh, I, that was like the the most controversial show we've ever done, and it shouldn't have been about intersectional Bigfoot. Yeah, just some of the ideas that were brought up in the in the you last know, the idea the idea that there might be like an a socioeconomic slant to the way people are are dealing with what they see as Bigfoot and how it kind of parallels a lot of racist thought uh, about other people other cultures and. And then we were talking about didn't we didn't we go into a little bit of feminist Bigfoot to the point where someone actually wrote and said she wanted to write a, a book with essays about like yeah, Bigfoot yeah from people, people were very very upset. So it really was either like people thinking like oh my god we really could frame all of this within these other con- constructs to people who were like get off of my Bigfoot the girls and, talking about stuff. And what's amazing to me is that like I'm sure politically I probably identify with the you ruined Bigfoot crowd but like <laughs> I find this so interesting like I don't know it's 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 the great conundrum of how Tim and I are able to get along so well and everybody else in the weird of the road goes slack is at each other's throats. Yeah <laughs> and, and we may be the furthest apart of anyone on there. 
I know, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're so far apart that we come back together. Yeah, but, yeah, it, if, but you can... that's the really beauty of shared phenomenon that's outside of the particular cultural narrative is that you can find you can find your humanity in it. You can find something to have in common with with other people. I think it's a compl- incredibly hopeful place where we don't have to be divided by these just as ridiculous notions of politics. Well, that's that's the thing that, you know, I, I've talked about this before, but and I don't really know if this is in the Bhagavad Gita, but it was in a song that referenced the Bhagavad Gita, so I'm going to roll with it. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that the, the warrior and the pacifist, if they're both sincere in their goals, have the same goal in mind, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, if, and I, yeah, I think that there's a lot of that going on where people just want the best for everything. They just have vastly different ideas of, of how yeah. to accomplish it. And, and I will say, honestly, the difference between, like, the music scene and the paranormal scene, give me the paranormal scene any day. People are kinder. People are nicer. Yeah. People are, are way friendlier. Um, it's more supportive and yeah. understand that um, they don't just like, I think in the music community, people are so adjusted to this idea that they should not pay for the arts on any level. So any image you create, any song you, you that you make is up for anybody to have at any time. Mm-hmm. And I and I don't I think within the paranormal community I think people are like I really want you to keep doing this so I'm going to help you. <laughs> it just seems much more supportive. At the yeah, end. it's it's very supportive, and you know it again. People from different beliefs, you know, if it seems like I'm coming down on people, I I'm really not. I really like respect all these different beliefs. I just I you know want my beliefs equally respected. That's all. But it's uh, an excellent way to put it. Yeah, but. Uh, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience it's been for me. And, you know, not to slag on the music community, but I'm just, just kind of comparing the two. Like, if I have to pick one, I'll take the paranormal community. Well, I remember we talked about this on the way back when we tried, like, twice to record on the way back from that convention. Oh, yeah. And, and this was something that kept on coming up was is the the fact that, like, you know, give me the the people in the paranormal the paranormal conferences are so much kinder than the people at, in any given musical community, you know? Yeah. Yes, I mean I find it to be true. So uh, I love you, listeners, and I'm you know I'm not trying to offend anyone. Like I said, I, I let's just you know try to keep our minds open and and look at at these different things if we can. In the defense of the uh, flesh and blood folks, I've had several come to me and say, "Look, I'm a flesh and blood guy, but I I love hearing what you say," you know, and that's all I can ask for. Yeah, and the other thing is, I just would encourage everyone not to get their identity caught up in their pet explanation because I do it myself, mm-hmm. but to really realize that, yeah, if, if we all have the same goals, we're, we're all, and we're all earnest about it. We all want the same thing, which is the truth. It's just, you, we, we all have to acknowledge where our own viewpoints fall short and explaining whatever's going on. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Where the footprints end volume two, High Strangeness in the Bigfoot Phenomenon. Volume 2 is Evidence. Volume 1 is Folklore. There's Evidence in Volume 1. There's Folklore in Volume 2. But uh, we did divide them up. Like I said, you could start with either volume. You can find them both at Amazon. You can order them both from Josh or I. Or uh, you can order them into your local bookstore. Just You just probably have to ask them to order them. We're happy whatever way you get them. Josh, thanks for coming on Strange Familiars. Such a pleasure. I love the fact that we were able to have uh, such a such an interesting conversation, sort of skirting around the book, and uh, 
I will also say that uh, it has been a great journey with you, Tim, and I've learned a lot about myself um, <laughs> throughout this process. A lot of things that, you know, about my my own patience and, and uh, some, some things that I'm good at and some shortcomings of my own. But I really think that uh, there is something, there's a special bond here between uh between the two of us. And I think that uh, this is a good uh, commemoration of that. Absolutely. And uh, in, going into the future, I actually think that our next two, pro our next ind independent projects are going to complement each other quite well. <laughs> so <laughs> that'll be interesting to see if, if we keep on uh, writing companion books to each other for the rest of our careers. <laughs> Absolutely. Josh, where can people find Josh? Joshua Cutchin, J O S H U A C U T C H I N dot com. My email is foodtaboo at gmail dot com, uh, but you can link to the contact form there. Links to all my books, all my interviews, and uh, yeah, you can get all those directly from me. I have all of them in stock. So awesome! And if you're a patron, we're going to continue this discussion, talk about some disappearing evidence for patrons. Allison, thank you for hosting our discussion tonight. Uh, sorry, it wasn't a real interview, but I can't. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's hey, we've done plenty. The, the, the idea with strange familiars is let's let's kind of talk a little bit more freely and and hopefully get into stuff that we don't get into on other podcasts. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. It was awesome. Okay, I just want to mention one more time, I know we said it at the end there, but our patron show for February is going to be a continuation of this conversation, but it's a little bit more focused. We talk about the chapter on disappearing evidence, which is uh, one of my favorite chapters that I wrote in volume two. And I, I believe this is the, you couldn't see me because we were in different rooms when we were recording and the entire time I had my snarky eyebrow up. So just imagine that as you listen. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Well, because I think your idea was you're looking for definitive evidence, and I'm just talking about the phenomenon of disappearing evidence. evidence. Yes, yeah. yes. I, and later on, I thought, well, that was sort of a disservice because you weren't claiming that as evidence. You were claiming it more as like the phenomenon itself of potential evidence, which is yet to be decided how relevant disappearing, whether it's relevant or not. Yeah, exactly. As Like I said, my favorite example is the Patty film where you have both the film, which is the potential evidence mm -hmm. of something real, potentially, and the suit, which is potential evidence of it being a hoax. And yeah. both are missing. Both are missing. You can't yeah. find either one. I, I mean, and, and the one definitive, well, the one definitively existed. One way or another. Yeah. Yes, it had to. Like I said, it, that film either shows a man in a suit or a creature. Yeah. Like, there's no in-between. It's one of those two things. If you want to hear that, you've got to be a patron. Patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. We should be dropping that in the next couple of days, I think, for our patrons. And I want to thank our patrons. Thank you all so much. It is a huge help to us, and we absolutely couldn't do Strange Familiars without you. You guys make the shows happen, so thank you. I also want to thank Samantha N. for her PayPal donation. Thank you very much. That also helps a great deal. It's awesome. So thanks so much. For our photo of the week, tonight, we have a ferrotype. Mm-hmm. Which is the same thing as a tintype. I'm being fancy. Mm -hmm. You tell me about this picture. Well, it's kind of unusual sometimes mm -hmm. to see um, very obviously blonde children in photographs, especially early on. Sometimes those yellow tones would darken. Would darken in the process. So this is a little girl who very much has very very light hair, 
And then she's standing in front of a painted backdrop that's actually much more realistic than a lot of other ones. Yeah, it's a really nice painting. Yeah. And her hand is on an empty chair, which sometimes that represents a loss in the family. And sometimes it's just the photographer's chair. <laughs> sometimes it's just to steady a, a kid. Right? Yeah, just to have a place to stand. Yeah. I say there's a ghost in that chair. Yeah, it's her identical twin sister is sitting in that chair. You Ooh, just have to know. That's a spooky story. So, yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's a little spooky in its own just to see someone with just such a shock of blonde, almost white hair yeah. in a tintype. Okay, listen to that sound. We're not doing an ASMR podcast. <laughs> <laughs> but if we were, this is... So if... It makes a great sound. <laughs> See, I don't have... I have neither the nails or the 25-year-old body to be an ASMR artist, so <laughs> I'm just going to have to do it... Ooh, I like the best word of that. Yeah, I like that song. All right. (laughs) So if you want to see this photo, you can go to the show notes under this episode at strangefamiliars.com. There will be an image of that. You can click on it. It'll take you to our Etsy page where you can buy that or other photos of the week. We still have some left. Guess how many photos of the week we've done? I don't have a good sense of that. 30? (laughs) Way more. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. I have no idea. We're over 60 now. Seriously? We're in the 60s, yeah. I had no clue. Yeah. Some of those are still available. It could be because the past year is somewhat of a blur. It it is, yeah. Our Etsy shop name is Lost Grave. That's one word if you type it in. But if you type in Strange Familiars, our stuff should come up. You can find it that way. While you're at Etsy, I just added a bunch of new artwork new to the Etsy shop. Mm -hmm. It's older stuff that I had done. I did a book and CD called Undeath. I want to say in 2010 or around that that time, but it was um, it was a little art book and a CD that came together. Actually, it was kind of a thick art book and CD that came together. I did a bunch of artwork. I had stopped drawing for a long time, and I would, to get back into drawing, I, I was doing these this whole series of these ghosts, essentially these spirits, these weird things, and I did this whole album based around it. So I have a ton of these drawings just laying around from that series where I was sort of uh, getting back into drawing, finding my drawing legs again, in a sense. I put the last of those up, I think. I want to say it's the last. I might find another stack of them someday. That's very likely. (laughs) But some of them are real inexpensive. If you want an original piece of my artwork, like some of them are 25 bucks. Oh, that's fantastic. Get a half page. Is They're like eight and a half by five and a half, or roughly. There's other artwork there as well. I just sold both frontest pieces to Where the Footprints End 1 and 2. I don't know if the person wants their name announced, but thank you, Brian. That's wonderful. The cover for volume two has gone to the same person that bought the cover to volume one. So I like when things find the right home. Yeah, yeah. I want to thank Maynard for that. So keep your eye out, though, on Etsy. I'll be dropping more artwork there as either I find originals or as I do more and so forth. You can also get our books there. You can get Where the Footprints End, Volume 1, Volume 2. I just put up a set if you want to order them both together. You can buy them both and get a little discount when you order them both together. All my other books are up there, including my art book, Apparitions, Illustrations of the Other, Still trying to get that on Amazon. They're not opening up their warehouses to new new titles at this point. So We've quarantined them in a box for quite a while. I yeah. think they'd be safe to ship. <laughs> well, waiting to hear back from them. But until they take apparitions, it looks like we're the only place to get it. Well, us, Riverbend Comics, and there might be a couple other mail order places that bought them from me directly. Or you can get them in American Daydream Antiques in York if you're local. Always have copies of my books there as well. Thanks for listening, everybody. If you want to continue the Bigfoot strangeness, you can check out our 
Patreon episode. There'll be a follow-up part two to this conversation. Otherwise, we will be back next week with another episode of Strange Familiars. Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts, music, books, art, podcasts, and more. Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars, where you can join the Strange Familiars Gathering Group. And we are on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.